the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, more tree cats than you can shake a picket wood forest at, along with near beavers, near lettuce, near otters, near pines, hey, we're nearly done, and an actual authentic locally sourced wholly organic planet Earth interview with David Weber and Jane Lenskold. Also, poetic artillery to arm your imagination for the weekend. And part 31 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have part two of an interview with David Weber and Jane Linskold on the new book they've co-authored, Tree Cat Wars. Joining in the conversation is also Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf. This is a good one. David and Jane are very articulate and voluble and love this series they're creating together. Tree Cat Wars is the third book in the Star Kingdom series. This is part of the Honor Harrington universe, of course. Our main protagonist is Stephanie Harrington. She's 15 in the book, but she lived 300 years before Honor Harrington, when the planet Sphinx in the Manticoran system was just getting settled and the intelligent, empathetic tree cats were just being discovered. The series begins with A Beautiful Friendship, that's the title, continuing with Fire Season, and now we have Tree Cat Wars. So prepare for part two of this great discussion. We also have begun a project here at Bain to collect poetry into an audiobook that we're putting together. The poems all have military themes, and they are some of the favorite poems of your favorite Bain authors, uh, these are by great poets from the past. We've had David Drake reading Rudyard Kipling's The Birds of Prey March, and Tom Crapman reading Apologia Pro Poemate Mio on a previous podcast. This time we have Tom Crapman again, creator of the Carrera and Countdown series, reading another work by the great World War I poet Wilfred Owen. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All of this coming your way on the Bain Free Radio Hour. But first, here's the news. The mid-month eARCs are out, Laura. Hooray! Yeah. Now, eARC is the super-secret organization prepping for the zombie apocalypse by storing all of humanity downloaded to electronic form. They're doing this in a cave in Mount Rushmore. Uh, are you sure about that? The truth is out there, Laura. The truth is out there. But an eARC is also an advanced reading copy of a new Bain book. It's an electronic advanced reading copy, and it's straight from the author's computer to your fingertips, mistakes and all. So this would be what used to be known as a galley. Right. You get it early. Yes, you get it several months before the actual physical books and the e-books hit the stores. Yeah, I think the new eARCs are January print books at the moment. So mm -hmm. the new eARCs include 1636 Seas of Fortune. This is a standalone novel in the Ring of Fire series, and it's by Ivor P. Cooper. Actually, this one collects the series of novellas and stories that Ivor has been writing for years on the 1632.org website. These are stories that Eric Flint thought were so good and so interrelated that they were crying out to be a book. And now they are. It will be out soon. 
Will you give us a brief pricey of the Ring of Fire series in general, Laura? Well, I don't know about a pricey, but I'll tell you what it's about. Okay, that'll do. <laughs> a 1632 Ring of Fire series uh, is an alternate history set in 17th century Europe, uh, set during the time of the Thirty Years' War, which pit Protestants against Catholics, Habsburgs against Bourbons, and pretty much tore up that part of Europe for, for many, many years. And so smack in the middle of this conflict, you have a group of West Virginians from the town of Grantville, West Virginia. They have been, their town has been displaced in time and space several hundred years, plopped down in uh, Germany, right in the middle of this conflict. And so you have American ingenuity and know-how pitted against European old world sensibilities. Lots of wars in the middle of Europe at the at the time, so it's a it's a time travel tale uh, with a whole town being the time traveler. Yeah, it's an ensemble cast of characters and several different plot threads going. It's it's a really interesting universe, very diverse and rich. Yeah, well, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast. So, sixteen thirty six Seas of Fortune is about the effects of the people and knowledge from the future on North America and Japan. It goes where no Ring of Fire book has gone before. That'll be so exciting to read. Looking forward to it. And we've also got a new novel from Frank Chadwick called The Forever Engine. It's been available this month as an e-arc. This is a science fiction and steampunk novel with a scientifically plausible parallel universe explanation for the steampunk. Yeah, and the story turns on that science fiction idea. So even if you don't like steampunk or you don't know if you like steampunk or you've never heard of steampunk, if you like science fiction, give this one a try either now or later or both. You can find these eharks at baneebooks.com. We're very pleased to present part two of an interview with authors David Weber and Jane Lenskold and Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf. David Weber is, of course, the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse, within which that series is set. Beginning with On Basilisk Station, Weber's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies. As those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast know, we've been serializing David's latest entry in that series, Shadow of Freedom. David has had 17 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. Now, as many of you know, Admiral Honor Harrington has an alien companion called a tree cat. His name is Nimitz, and he's both psychically empathetic and telepathic to a degree. Among other things, he serves as a very effective lie detector for Honor. In 2011, David decided to expand the history of the Honorverse with a new series for young adults and the young at heart, featuring the ancestor of Honor Harrington, Stephanie Harrington. This series is called the Star Kingdom series, and it began with the novel A Beautiful Friendship, which tells the tale of the first meeting of humans and tree cats. For the second entry in the series, David joined with Jane Lenskold to co-author the novel Fire Season, and now David and Jane have produced Tree Cat Wars, book three of the Star Kingdom series. Jane Lenskold is a best-selling author herself, the author of 23 novels, including the best-selling Firekeeper high fantasy series. Her latest standalone novel is Five Odd Honors, the latest entry in her Breaking the Wall contemporary fantasy adventure series. And finally, Tony Weiskopf, my boss, is the publisher and editor-in-chief 
of Bain Books. Here's part two of the interview. I had established um, early on that tree cats did occasionally have wars, that there was occasional conflict, um, and that every so often one tree cat would kill another tree cat, although it was extremely rare among them for this to happen. But I'd never actually contemplated writing a story um, in which we looked at a war between clans from the inside out. Um, and I honestly, uh, when we got past this, the, the first collaboration, the second book in the series and into the third one, Jane and I were, were bouncing ideas back and forth. Uh, and Jane, I don't remember which of us suggested well, okay, we I were talking either. about it when, when Sharon and I were out in New Mexico sitting yeah. in your kitchen. We were talking about it. Yeah. And, and it was I don't just remember one of those, which you know, of it. It was one of those synergy yeah. moments. Well, it was, it was conceptual. We, we, were talking, we were talking about how the concept of tree catdom worked, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things that we talked about was the fact that tree cats were capable of, of violence towards one another. And... And then the whole the whole concept of of the war and linking it directly to the in to the the forest fires in fire season allowed a very smooth um, uh, segue gave us a very logical entry point into doing this. We didn't have to contrive a situation that would that would uh would push two clans towards one another because we'd created it by burning down so much of the planet um in in the well we didn't actually burn down that much of the planet but the damage in the region where these particular tree cats live was significant uh, and it was an and, area uh, with large amounts comparatively of human settlement which created yeah. the other constraint and i think did a good job of keeping our two plots Strands intertwined, not just in mm -hmm. terms of character communication, but in terms of themes. It was almost a foreshadowing yeah. of the days when humans would be more broadly spread across things, and what the heck would the tree cats do when they could no longer mm -hmm. move freely? Well, I, there so. are there are at least two more books that I'd like to do um, in this series. Um, and in in my mind, what we're looking at would be that the YAs, um, and, and Jane and I both believe that it's a disaster to write down in a YA uh, that you should you should respect your audience and and uh, allow them the 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 um, I don't want to say the dignity, but to allow them the uh, to allow them to be readers, not young readers, if you see what I'm yeah. saying. Uh, but I think that probably the transition point for me from this is a YA series with adult entry into it into this is an adult series with young reader entry into it would be the point at which Stephanie marries. That's kind of the dividing point that I've got in my in my brain here. And I see at least two more books uh, to get her to that point. And, and when I say at least, I'm saying, you know, that would be the minimum, I think, that, that could do it. 
Well, Stephanie is in love in this Stephanie. in this book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Stephanie's journey to Matacor and um, and what's going on with her? Well, Jane actually uh, <laughs> has did and did well, uh, very well, I thought. The relationship between her and Anders, um, and one of the things that I liked about it, and this was Jane's suggestion to me, um, is that. Basically, what Jane said to me is, yo, how often does the first heartthrob turn out to be the one that you're actually going to, you know, uh, find is your your right person? Um, and um, one of the things that was cool here is that everybody involved, um, Anders, uh, Jessica, uh, Stephanie, they're all good people. They're all moral and ethical people. There's no, you know, scummy guy. Well, there are some scummy guys, but we don't like them. They're over on the other side. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they, I mean, these are these are good people, good kids uh, who are grappling with um, with the the, 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 the the truth of their emotions and yeah, the conflict. Um, and it's an internal conflict as well as an external conflict. Um, and it's. And, and I, I just have yeah, to figure here and say that yeah, it go. comes back, in this case, when Weber and I started working through this, it came back to the tree cat because Climbs Quickly never would have let Stephanie get involved with a real loser. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. And so, in a sense, Anders had to be at least decent. He might mm -hmm. have flaws that times quickly as a tree cat wouldn't understand or flaws in an interpersonal human relationship, but we couldn't have it be the case of the, you know, manipulative son of the land speculators who yeah. was just using yeah, it, it was clear that his, his, his intentions were good. Yeah, which I think yeah. made it much well, more know. interesting. Yeah, and another thing, um, and I know I've, I've talked to you about this before, uh, Tony, the publisher, um, is, you know, I feel strongly that uh, there ought to be some competent adults in, in, in young adult books. Uh, I really get ticked when every adult in sight is either completely and utterly incompetent or, or vile, um, and the, the young adult uh, character in the book has to be both smarter than and, and much nicer than uh, the adults. So Stephanie's parents, for example, are they're good parents, okay? They do a good job of raising the kid. Uh, but Jane did a really, really good job with Andrew's dad in, <laughs> in creating a guy who was so obsessed with what he was doing that he was willing to cut corners and whatnot. And yet, in the third book, in, in, in Tree Cat Wars, we actually rehabilitate him. Um, a little. To... to well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like Anders is still saying, well, okay, as soon as he gets really involved in a dig here. But it's kind of like he's forced to look in a mirror because of what happens in fire season. Um, and he doesn't like everything that he saw when he, when he, when he looked into it. Um, now, by the way, it is possible for a human to lie to a tree cat, okay, mm -hmm. uh, to deceive a tree cat. Let me, let me, let me. Paraphrase. Let me let me switch on that. Uh, especially when the tree cat can't communicate directly with the human involved. 
Uh, there is a character in the um, in uh, Tree Cat Wars uh, who does not wish Stephanie well, um, and the Clines quickly hasn't seen this character a bunch, but he's uneasy in in her presence uh, when when he does. But the situation is such that he's feeling, he's sensing the fact that she's really upset, she's really, you know, there's consternation going on. And he doesn't realize that it's because her strategy to ambush Stephanie and him failed, and she's upset because they got out of it, you know, in one piece, uh, because she's passing herself off as Stephanie's friend. And so he's like, well, you know, obviously she has every reason to be upset because my two legs almost got hurt, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's possible for a tree cat to be misled, especially when they're dealing as as climbs quickly as at this point with a species they don't actually know that much about. But it would hmm. not and be possible. she is very good at deceiving. Yes, she, she is. She is very good. Well, it helps that she is. Um, very good at it. She that particular bad guy in the or bad woman in the book is um she she is pretty much fully aware that these are sentient creatures and by knowing that she's more capable of of pulling off a a deceit with them. She arranges to not be around them at at certain times, for instance, and only have Stephanie yes. around. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Uh, she she manipulates. She manipulates the situation to create the impression that she wants. And you're right. She does arrange to not have climbs quickly meet her <laughs> uh, for a while. Um, I think that's that's uh, a, an absolutely valid uh, uh, observation. It's, now, if Gwendolyn were speaking directly to Stephanie and told uh, a, a lie that she knew was a lie to Stephanie in... Climbs Quickly's presence, Climbs Quickly's radar would go off and say, this person is telling a lie. And Tree Cats have had to sort of come to grips with this concept of lying. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, these, these two legs can actually tell each other things that aren't true and get away with it. You know, <laughs> no, you're kidding. Yeah, they can, really. You know. um, so uh, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. To, to to nibble around the edges of of uh, how this entire communication interface is evolving and what it means. I mean, for instance, the the villain in um, in uh, Fire Season, no, in in A Beautiful Friendship, um, the the tree cats didn't like him from the minute they met him. Okay, but he was he was a. I like villains who are competent. Okay. And he was a competent villain. He, you know, he's like, okay, I got to figure out what range they can they can sense me at, and 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 that sort of thing. Um, but you know, the problem is that when you have competent good guys or competent villains, they have to make competent mistakes mm-hmm. um, in in order to lose. You can't just say, okay, well, he's my, you know, he's been competent, he's been competent, he's competent. Okay, well, it's time for him to lose. Okay, well, today he forgot to check his wallet when he left the house. such a competent way 
that the reader doesn't recognize them as mistakes. Okay, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm like, of course it was a mistake, you know. Uh, and they're like, no, no, it's what she had to do to be honor. And I'm like, that's still a mistake. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm sorry. I digress. I digress. You know. Um, well, what are the uh, in Tree Cat Wars? Uh, what are the stakes, the jeopardy that the tree cats face with with humans in particular? Can you can you set that up a little bit? Uh, what are the human? What are the bad guys trying to do? Okay. Land Yeah, that's the best way to put it. The the the, the tree cats are the the uh, native sentient species of Sphinx. And this is not the first time that humanity has encountered uh, a a sentient uh, uh, extrasolar uh, species. And they haven't always handled it well. Uh, By and large, they've done better than we did with, say, the American Indians, uh, but not in every case. And the problem is that there are... Um, land futures for options that have been granted on Sphinx to help finance their fight against the um, the plague that decimated the original colony. And these um, uh, land options may not be worth a whole bunch right this minute, but they are going to be worth literally billions and billions of dollars in in the fullness of time. And Nobody knew there was a sentient species on Sphinx when the land options were granted. So the concern of the bad guys is if the tree cats are recognized as a sentient species, what does that do for human occupation of the planet? Do we recognize them as the rightful owners of Sphinx? And does the Star Kingdom say, well, we have three habitable planets in this star system, and only one of them has a sentient species living on it. We should concentrate on the other two and put this one pretty much off limits to further human development in order to protect the the tree cats. So there are very large uh, financial stakes involved here for future investment. Now, The reason that this is uh, relevant to the folks who are running today is because they're using those those, uh, uh, options and their future earnings to secure debt and investment as investment instruments in in the present day. Eventually, Stephanie, when she is much older, uh, in her her 50s, um, is the person who essentially drafts the... um, Ninth Amendment to the Star Kingdom's Constitution, which recognizes tree cats as an intelligent species, gives them the legal status of minor children, um, and reserves one-third of the surface of Sphinx for tree cats in perpetuity. Um, And that's what she's aiming for, what she and the friends of tree cats are aiming for in these early books. But it's in some ways, it's going to be an uphill fight to get there. And what they are concerned about, one of the things they're concerned about right this minute is, in a sense, they are deliberately attempting, they're, de- they're attempting to deliberately prevent the full intelligence of tree cats being recognized by humanity as a whole, 
because they're afraid that if that happens, it will bring the situation to a head before they've been able to build up the bulwark they need, the legal bulwark they need, to protect the tree cats. Um, is that I, I think I think it was it? in my mind as as the great tree cat conspiracy, but uh, that, that's just how I characterize it. I live in the West, um, and we see the you know I live daily with the consequences of an of indigenous population granted the status of minor children and put on reservations, and what it does yeah. to the, the culture in the long run is not always yeah. very good. Um, so no, even as Stephanie is something of a hero, there's a part of me that sort of resents the, on, on behalf of the tree cats, whose head I spend a lot of time in, resents the fact that this is the best save their greatest champion could make for them. You can have one-third of your own world and be demoted to children. Thank you. Ugh. Well, and I bet it okay, well, Stephanie, you... too. Of yeah, course, that's, that's, not, that's, but... that's not the tree cats' end game, though. No, no. So the tree cats, the tree cats are deliberately concealing the the full scope of their intelligence while they gain information on the two legs. Um, and so there is the, the the even the tree cats who uh, adopt humans who bond with them um, are deliberately concealing the full capabilities of their intelligence. And I would also say that. The reason that the tree cats are given minor children status under the Constitution is not so that the state can can decree their how they're going to live and so forth. It's specifically uh, to to obviate to to prevent legal machinations where. But this tree cat agreed to that, um, and I, I agree with everything you said, Jane. Uh, I, I really do. Uh, but another problem, of course, is the fact that um, until well after Stephanie's lifetime, it is literally impossible to communicate two ways with mm -hmm. the tree cats. Uh, and so when they say, you know, you get a third of the planet in perpetuity, um, given the size of the tree cat population and the size of Sphinx, that is a huge, huge swath of, of, of territory which is being preserved for them. And unlike the territory that got handed over to the reservation Indians here in the United States, it's not going to be a case of our cherry picking the good stuff and you can have the desert. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I I I fully understand what Jane is saying and I actually agree with her. But by the same token, this is uh, a case of of the best outcome that that uh, that Stephanie and her friends can engineer. Uh, at this point, in no small part, because there literally is no way for a tree cat representative to turn up in front of Parliament and say, you know, I speak for the, you know, the gathered clans, uh, and they've chosen me to speak to you, and these are how we, this is how we think things should be done. I, to some extent, it is very tempting and a bit misleading to draw too close a parallel between the tree cats and and um, uh, less advanced human cultures that have been run over by more okay advanced is a loaded term uh, more powerful technologically sophisticated culture. yeah technologically sophisticated is good uh, because the tree cats and humans 
literally don't have the capability to do some of the things that you need to do to function as fully integrated, um, uh, uh, partnered, equal standing uh, societies. They, they just don't have well, the communications interface to do that at this point. They do end up in, in an interesting symbiotic relationship, though. I was also going to say that the great tree cat conspiracy, uh, you do a good job in A Beautiful Friendship of setting up how the tree cats through the memory singers see the first humans that visit Earth, I mean, uh, think, then it, they see yeah. the later returns, they see the power of the technology, they see the ability for them to you know, cut down enormous forest giants in minutes. In other words, the tree cat's decision to withhold the contact with humans comes across as an intelligent and sophisticated decision, not the mm -hmm. cute little furries hiding in the forest. And yeah. I like that a lot. Well, yeah, one of the things that um, I've been talking with the folks, uh, the Evergreen uh, film folks who wanted or, or who are working on the Anna Harrington movie, is how do we visually present um, Nimitz? Um, hmm. Because on the one hand, he has to be he has to be oh, isn't he cute? And on the other hand, he has to be excuse me while I rip out your throat. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's 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 been an interesting discussion, and he's going to be the most expensive and difficult part of the entire movie, uh, because he's going to be 100%, you know, CGI, uh, pretty much, uh, in order to make him work. And mm -hmm. I think that we're on sort of the right track, but it's going to be interesting to see how it how it works out. But one of the things that when I started the the adult novels. Uh, with Basilisk Station, I was deliberately kind of peeling the onion with both Honor and her character and her background and her relationship with Nimitz because I wanted to be revealing things in successive books um, before the the character growth in the books took on its own, you know, uh, 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 momentum for the reader. Um, and so when you first meet Nimitz in the books, he really does come across a lot more as the the, the cute but smart guy, you know. Um, and then later on, you begin to see the, the, the depths of Honor's relationship with him that you didn't see immediately in the books. And one of the things that we have to do in the movie is figure out how to bring that deeper relationship to the fore quickly so that the, the viewer doesn't fall into the trap of, of thinking of Nimitz as a pet early on. If you, you see what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Mm -hmm. yeah. And Stephanie, Stephanie has to deal with that in the contact with other humans, which she turns up with, with, uh, with, uh, climbs quickly or, or Lionheart. Um, and the, I, I find that it's really kind of cool the fact that, as I've done with Nimitz all along, but with the tree cats here, they all have, all the tree cats that interact with humans have two names. Okay, the one that the humans call them by and the one that they call themselves by or, or one another by. And I find that by moving back and forth between the names, it kind of automatically shifts, shifts perspective, okay, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is kind of cool. 
The other thing that is, is going on here is not just that they're cute and cuddly and that they'll rip your throat out if you look sideways at their, at their person, but it is the fact that they literally bond to, in a sense, fuse with the, 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 the human partner. And one of the great tragedies of human tree-cat relations is that tree-cats will live 250 years and humans won't. And the tree cats don't realize, really, when they begin bonding with the humans, how short-lived humans are compared to mm -hmm. tree cats. And the humans don't realize that a bonded tree cat almost invariably dies when his human partner dies. Um, and so every tree cat who adopts a human being, if you assume that the tree cat and the human being, that, that the tree cat is 50 and the human being is 15 when they bond, Okay, and that the human is going to make it all the way to a hundred, the tree cat's still losing seventy years of uh, sacrificing seventy years of his life in order to bond with the human. Um, and um, it's uh, Stephanie doesn't know that yet in these books. She hasn't had a chance to to realize what happens. The only the only tree cat who's lost his human so far in in the Honorverse is uh, The Stray uh, from the Linda Evans uh, short story. And he kept himself alive long enough to kind of get vengeance for his two-leg and dies in... He, uh, he, he flings himself onto a rifle to prevent another human from being shot and is, is killed mm -hmm. that way, sacrifices his life. And nobody realizes that he was hanging to his, his uh, existence by his, by his toenails, by his claws, uh, until he could get justice for his human. And so they don't know that he would have died anyway. Um, and that's going to be kind of a little bit of a dark thread <laughs> uh, when, when, when the readers become aware of it. What is, um, I have a, uh, a question about the relationship of, uh, speaking of timelines and lengths of time, what is Stephanie's exact relation to honor and is Climbs Quickly related to Nimitz? Climbs Quickly is a direct ancestor of Nimitz, and Stephanie is Honor's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. So, yeah, they are... Um, uh, there's a very direct connection. Honor's full name is Honor Stephanie Harrington. Yeah. Um, and her father's uh, full name is Carl Alfred Harrington. Everybody calls him Alfred. But and just in case that may be a little giveaway as to where Honor is eventually going to wind up <laughs> getting married. Yeah, I'm sorry, Stephanie. Yes. Um, see, I told you I'm I'm coming up on a birthday here. We, we, we do not want really, to inadvertently. Yeah. We do not want to inadvertently introduce a time travel element to all of this. That would just be bad. <laughs> well, why not? You know, it's like it's like it's like it's like every other every other Friday Star Trek hit a temporal rift. I mean, you know, we we might as well <laughs> might as well do it too. Yeah. It's like I, I um, think the Bunai yeah, people the, would kill us. That's <laughs> oh, we would we would be so. Dead. But Honor actually grows up in the same house that Stephanie's parents build on Sphinx. And um, in Honor's lifetime, the Harrington Freehold is still intact. They haven't lost any of the, any of the land from it. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's 20 kilometers on a side 
just a modest little place in the hills, you know. And by the standards of the the, the colonization of Sphinx at the time that they moved there, it really is a fairly modest place. It doesn't qualify them to own enough land to be one of the one of the a member of the nobility. I don't, you know, Tony Weisskopf knows this, but I don't know if the other Tony does, but Weber and I have known each other since my entire publication record was one short story. The very first autograph I ever signed was for the woman who would eventually become Weber's wife, and he had one and a half novels. So we've known each other just way too long and uh, have absolutely no reverence, which is actually probably one of the better things in the collaboration. Um, we're yeah. comfortable with each other. We have a lot of respect. We've got a friendship that's well over 20 years long. Uh, Weber convinced me to marry my current husband. I talked him through proposing to Sharon. So it means that there's um, there's a, an awful lot of depth of friendship and shared experiences, shared reactions uh, to, well, we've, you know, walked each other through the depths of parents, through the disillusion of marriages, a whole bunch of other things. And I think it lets us write on a deeper level, almost by reflex, together, because we've been through so much as friends. We both have strong views, and there are times when we're we're not uh, totally in sync with one another about where we should go next. But um, I think that when we have when we've gotten past the 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 okay figuring out where we're going to go we know each other so well that when we incorporate the the storyline the characters and the situation meld very well i mean i wrote the 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 uh, manticore strand in isolation from what Jane was writing for what was going on on Sphinx simultaneously. And yet when you brought the two strands together, they really meshed well. Um, yeah, and that's a good emailed, thing. My mom emailed me today and said that she just finished reading Tree Cat Wars and she couldn't tell what parts you wrote and what parts I wrote. So she figured it must mm-hmm. be a good collaboration. Well, let me put it to you this way. Good collaborations work, in my opinion, in one of two ways. When you cannot tell where one partner begins and another one ends, or where it is crystal clear where one partner begins and another ends. Okay? I mean, those are the two Mm -hmm. types of collaborations that work, where it's kind of muddled. And 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 the the the, the narrative style never really settles. Uh, that's where I think you start getting into trouble with the, the the you know the proverbial too many cooks stirring away at the broth. Having read the book last week um, carefully, I would say that it is seamless and it works very well. Which of you is the tree cat and which is the human, though? That might be the well. We we both are. We both are a tree cat and we both are a human. Um, and it's, uh, you know, Climbs Quickly and, and Lionheart is that particular pairing is, is very much me because that was the, the, the original doorway, the original window into the, the, into the tree cat human relationship. How I visualize Stephanie as a character has, evolved 
um, in in part from working with Jane on uh, on on who Stephanie is and what she's doing, uh, and I think that's a very good thing. Uh, Jessica and uh, and uh, Digger uh, were originally 100% Jane creations. And I think a little tiny bit of my DNA has kind of crept into their relationship. But those are, Jane, would you say that those are the two most clearly defined tree cat human pairings? I mean, there's Scott yeah. McDowell, but right, he's, but he's, he's more uh, off stage. Yeah, yeah. Him and Twist Striker are are appear when when we need a good competent adult. But you know, we don't want. Scott running the show. We want Stephanie yeah. and her friends running the show. So yeah, Scott is one yeah, of the really good, reliable adults. Um, I think that I think that there is a subtle uh, difference um, in the in the Jessica. I'm saying Digger. Am I getting that right? Dirt it's Grubber, yes. Valiant. Okay, Valiant. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry because I'm flipping back and forth between tree cat names and human names. But there's there is there is a difference between the Jessica Valiant relationship and the Stephanie Lionheart relationship because they're different tree cats and they're different humans, and so so it's it brings a sense of of you know what there are lots of tree cats out there who have different personalities. There are lots of humans out there who have different personalities. You've got that whole sense flowing. Uh, in the background of of the story, and I think that it is a very good thing, and that it is part of what I've I think I've already referred to as the texturing of the of the tree cat society. We understand human societies at least fairly well. You know, we have we have more more continuity, more more points of of uh, of, uh, of congruity uh, between Stephanie's. Society and our society than we do between our society and an alien society, um, and I, I really, really like the ability to kind of see the tree cats through two sets of human eyes that are on the inside. Okay, and, and the human eyes I'm talking about here are me and Jane, because we see them in in subtly different ways, and that communicates in the fact that they have subtly different relationships. Wait, wait, I have, I have one more thing oh, I need can, to say before I, we go. I, I, I think I speak for Jane in this. We are very, very happy with the covers that we've gotten, I think. Is that yeah. fair, Jane? Those are Do Daniel Dos Santos covers, I believe. But did you get right? that on the record? Yeah, da Dan Dos Santos did the uh, did, did the covers for those, and uh, it was great getting a chance to to work with him um, on this project. Uh, he he contributed so much um, to to helping package these um, properly. I think mm -hmm. they're beautiful. I, I have to say, I like all of them, but I think I especially like the Tree Cat Wars cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the book is Tree Cat Wars, the third entry in the Star Kingdom Young Adult series uh, featuring Stephanie Harrington and her tree cat companion, Climbs Quickly. I want to thank Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf and authors David Weber and Jane Lenskold for being with us today to talk about the book. Thank you so much, folks. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Bye -bye. And now here is a poem by the great World War I poet Wilfred Owen. It's read by Tom Kratman creator of the Carrera series. Here is Tom Kratman reading Wilfred Owen. Dulcet decorum est. Wilfred Owen, killed in action, 1918. 
Bent double like old beggars under sacks. Knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and toward our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched to sleep. Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping quietly behind. Gas, gas, quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitten as the cud of vile and curable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, Gulka et Coram est, pro patria, mori. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, but is locked in an ongoing conflict with another menace, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. This conflict has all the signs of escalating into full-scale war. At the moment, however, the Solarian League is crumbling politically, and on the edge of its empire, in a region known as the Verge, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge, often with brutal tactics and through the support of puppet dictators. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regime can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid. They are receiving such aid in the form of weapon drops by agents claiming to represent the Star Empire of Manticore. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment, genetic supremacists who want to replace the current political system with a ruling body of genetically engineered supermen of their own creation. To do this, they must fan the flames of war between the Solarian League and the Star Empire. In the Mobius system, rebels have shown stiff resistance in the face of a reign of terror. Popular opinion has only grown more volatile since a massacre by the presidential guard at a peaceful protest. Now a team of rebels with nothing left to lose have taken hostage the local corporate overseer in a bold attempt to force the president's hand. Here is part 31 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. The van, which had parked so quickly at street level when air traffic control ordered the local airspace cleared, had been abandoned with unseemly haste. The driver hadn't even wasted any time trying to straighten it out, She'd simply left it there, dumped across three parking slots, with its nose pointing out across the street at a sharp angle. It was sloppy of her, no doubt, but other vehicles had been abandoned with equal haste. 
There was, however, one difference between her van and any of those other vehicles, as the Presidential Guard discovered when it disappeared in a horrendous fireball. The weapon was technically an improvised explosive device, since it had been manufactured for the purpose out of readily available components by largely amateur hands. There was nothing haphazard or slipshod about it, though. A solid partition, both sides concave in shape, had been run lengthwise along the van's generous cargo space. The outer surfaces of the partition had been coated in explosives, civilian explosive compounds stolen from construction crews, not military-grade, but amply powerful for the task in hand, and the explosives, in turn, had been coated with a thick layer of screws, old-fashioned nails, bits and pieces of scrap metal, broken glass, and chunks of ceramicrete. The van had been transformed into a huge directional mine which sent a lethal sheet of shrapnel sweeping out in both directions simultaneously. The driver hadn't achieved a perfect angle, but she'd come close, and the strike leader had judged his moment carefully. He caught at least 90% of the advancing Presidential Guard infantry in the IED's blast area, and destruction crashed over them like a thunderbolt. The blast from swept-up weapons, helmets, equipment, and body parts on its fiery breath— it shredded its victims like toys and painted the pavement and slidewalks in ghastly sprays of blood decorated with bits and pieces of mangled flesh. I told you to call them off. The voice on Yardley's comm was cold and precise. You should have listened, but since you didn't... He pressed a second button. Tiger Braddock was astonished he was still alive. His position had been just deep enough inside the parking garage for its sturdy walls to intercept the shrapnel which had butchered his infantry. One moment, the next best thing to three hundred of his elite troops had been sweeping across Trifecta Boulevard towards their objective. The next moment, at least two hundred of them were dead, and a lot more were dying. He stumbled to the garage entrance, head ringing from the force of the explosion, and peered out in horror at Hell's own landscape as men and women with no legs tried to drag themselves out of the charnel house of the boulevard on their elbows and forearms. He saw another rocking on his knees while he tried to stuff his own intestines back inside his ruptured body. Another stumbled helplessly about, hands clasped over the blind red ruin of what had been a human face only moments before. Still others only lay there, unable to drag their mangled bodies anywhere, shrieking amid the motionless dead. He was still trying to comprehend the enormity of what had just happened when the third van, the one parked in the garage, which the strike leader had recognized just as clearly as Braddock was the perfect place to stash the guard's armored vehicles, exploded. It was a much larger bomb this time, and the driver had carefully parked it directly beside the central support pillar of the garage's entire structure. A huge sheet of flame shot out both open sides of the garage. Fresh flame billowed as the fuel tanks of parked vehicles fireballed, joining the fury of the original explosion. Braddock flung himself down on his belly, covering his helmeted head with his arms in instinctive self-preservation. For an instant, all he was aware of was the terrible, concussive force of the explosion. Then his stunned ears heard another sound. A grating grinding rumble, and he had one more second to realize his instincts had played him false. If he'd run out into the body-strewn nightmare of Trifecta Boulevard, he might have survived after all.
the entire parking garage came down, puffing out concentric rings of smoke and dust as its floors collapsed one by one into the roaring inferno which had engulfed Tiger Braddock's entire regiment. Looks like you need another regiment, General, the icy voice on Olivia Yardley's comm observed. Pity about that. Chapter 23 I don't need this kind of shit, General, Sveenlombroso said unpleasantly. I could go out and fuck everything up by the numbers myself without paying you and the rest of the guards such obscene amounts of money. Hell, I could probably even have gotten Guernica killed without you if I'd really tried. Would you rather I'd let the bastards walk away after taking out Braddock's entire regiment? General Yardley's tone was rather pointed, Lombroso thought, which probably had something to do with the fact that she knew she was irreplaceable, at least for now. It was a no-win situation from the outset, Mr. President. Once they got in and had Guernica in their possession, we either gave them what they wanted or we lost her. And you told me not to give them what they wanted. She shrugged. So I didn't. God damn it, Lombroso snarled. This makes what happened last month look like a friggin' picnic. And when Trifecta's home office hears about this... We didn't move in until Frolov personally okayed it, Yardley pointed out, and Lombroso's jaw muscles clenched. He started to tell her exactly what he thought of that threadbare excuse, then stopped. First, because it wouldn't do any good. He could chew her ass out all he wanted, and it wouldn't pour the blood back into Tyler Braddock's slaughtered men or put Georgina Guernica's shattered head back together again. And second, because she had a point. The standoff had lasted for over three tea days before Christianos Frolov, the assistant planetary operations manager for Mobius, had, as Yardley put it, okayed the assault. In fact, he'd effectively ordered the assault in a demonstration of manly determination that would probably go down well with his corporate superiors after he got done spinning his report properly. And which just happened to put his ass in Guernica's chair the president thought grimly. Well, she always was a pain in my ass anyway. And we've got Frolov on ship telling us the standoff was costing trifecta millions of credits every day and that it was time we got in there and took the tower back. If somebody back on old Terra wants to chew me out over that one, I'd just dump it on their own golden boy. Who knew, it might even do some good. And it might not, either. All right, he grated in a marginally calmer voice. I'll give you that one, but I still want to know how the hell this happened in the first place. You and Braddock got fucking reamed. How? Because no one saw it coming, Yardley told him frankly. She glared at Friedman Matias. We didn't? and neither did the MSP. Friedman. Lombroso gave the commander of his secret police a rather harder glance than Yardley had, and Matthias frowned. Olivia's right. We didn't see it coming, he confessed. They're still trying to get someone inside the MLF. 
So far, we've almost pulled it off three times, and I'm running short of volunteers given what happened each of those times. He showed his teeth briefly. The problem, Mr. President, is that this is the best organized opposition group we've faced yet. They're good. He shrugged. I don't like admitting it, but they are. And so far, they've always been smart enough to avoid high-profile challenges like this one. Our estimate at MSP, and I think from Olivia's people as well, is that they're really still in the infrastructure building stages. They're building membership, laying in caches of weapons, and setting up their communication chains. He raised his eyebrows at Yardley, who, despite their long-standing rivalry, nodded sharply. That's been our impression in the guard, she agreed. It's one of the reasons we've both been arguing that we needed to nip these people in the bud before they get themselves fully organized, Mr. President. Well, if they're so damn smart and if they're still so unprepared for major operations, what the hell was this all about? Lombroso demanded. I can't think of a more high-profile challenge than murdering Guernica in her own office. And how the hell did they get inside in the first place? We've identified what was left of the body of the guy we're pretty sure was the mastermind, Yardley told him. His name was Kazuyoshi Brewster, and he was telling the truth. He lost his entire family in the May riots. She shrugged again. We've only been able to identify six other members of his team. Five of them lost their entire families, or at least their closest family members, the same time he did. Obviously, Brewster was a damn good planner, but what really made the difference was that all of them had apparently decided they had nothing left to lose. They just wanted to do as much damage as they could before they went down. And I have to admit, they did a damned good job. A damned good job, Lombroso repeated, glaring at her. Well, they did, she responded. And the fact that they didn't care whether they got out or not meant they were prepared to take chances nobody, except a bunch of suicidal nutcases, would have considered for a moment. That's why we never saw it coming, this time at least. We've beefed up security across the board on off-world corporate offices. Lombroso glared at her for a moment remembering an ancient cliché about locked barn doors and missing horses, or was it cows? He brushed off the irrelevant thought and inhaled deeply. So tell me how this changes our situation, he commanded. You first, Olivia. Well, after examining Brewster's equipment, it's obvious someone's managed to stockpile even more off-world weapons than we thought. Given all of the deep-cover informants we've got out there, that says more than I want to hear about how good the MLF security is. I know Friedman's just pointed out that we haven't managed to get anyone inside the MLF itself, but we damned well ought to have enough surveillance systems and human intelligence sources out there to at least be able to spot modern weapons moving in quantities like this. She shrugged. We didn't. Lombroso suppressed a desire to throttle her. Strong as that temptation was, he knew it wouldn't do any good. Besides, what she'd just said was self-evidently true, and at least she'd had the nerve to say it.
Friedman, he said, looking at Matthias. Olivia's right. We've always known they were better than anyone else who's come along. But I'm beginning to think we've underestimated them for some time anyway. Lombroso's jaw muscles clenched as he glared at the two of them. They were his senior security officers. It wasn't a case of we've underestimated the MLF. It was a case of the two of them underestimating the terrorist bastards, and he considered pointing that out. Unfortunately, it would have accomplished exactly nothing. All right, he said once he was certain he had his voice under control. So you've underestimated them. He emphasized the personal pronoun only very slightly, but Yardley's hazel eyes glinted with anger anyway. Matias had better control than that, probably because he wasn't the one in the primary line of fire at the moment. Obviously, it's time you stop doing that. So how bad does the situation look now? Yardley's eyes didn't soften. For a moment, she seemed to hover on the brink of something rash, but apparently she realized no one was genuinely irreplaceable when it came down to it. I'm not really certain, she admitted levelly. Things are clearly escalating since the riots last month. My best estimate is that the MLF leadership doesn't want to escalate, though. What? Lombroso interrupted. He stared at her in disbelief. They just fucking wrecked Trifecta Tower and killed Guernica. Nobody's ever done that kind of damage to us before. Brewster and his team did, Yardley acknowledged. But there was no MLF statement about the attack until it was all over. And even then, their Commandant Alpha, whoever the hell he is, didn't claim direct credit for it. She shook her head. I think Brewster and the others put this together on their own. They were obviously MLF because nobody else is that good, and as far as we know, nobody else has the kind of off-world weapons support they seem to have. But I don't think Commandant Alpha or the rest of his cadre knew anything about it before we did, and I don't think they'd have okayed Brewster's plan if he'd asked them to authorize it either. Lombroso shook his head. I'd think those bastards would be getting behind and pushing for all they're worth, he said. What the hell makes you think they aren't? Because they're not ready, Yardley said flatly. That's what Friedman and I have been talking about. They've got some modern weapons on planet, yes, but not anywhere near as many as they want. We've confiscated around a hundred pulsars total so far. Most of them aren't new, but they're all in first-class condition. It looks like they've been refurbished as needed by some very competent armorers. But we've been picking them up in ones and twos. Frankly, most of them got grabbed because someone just pretty much stumbled over them. And Brewster's team is the first one we've seen armed entirely with military-grade pulse rifles. I think they've got more of them than we thought they had, but we're still picking up substantially greater quantities of old-fashioned chemical-powered firearms. So they've made an off-world connection somewhere, but they still don't have enough modern weapons to go around. And without more modern firepower, they're going to be at a significant tactical disadvantage in any confrontation with us, 
much less any Sali intervention battalions. They know that. She shrugged again. That being the case, my analysts say the leadership cadre can't be in favor of opening the dance this early. Then what the fuck is going on? Lombroso demanded. We've got transit bombings, ambushes of isolated security forces, and more acts of minor sabotage and cyber attacks than I even want to think about, all in addition to what happened to Guernicke, of course. I think Olivia's right, Mr. President, Matya said unexpectedly, and Lombroso looked at him sharply. I think what we're seeing here is primarily a more or less spontaneous reaction to the May riots, not a planned campaign by the MLF. The secret policeman continued. It certainly was in Brewster's case, and I don't see any reason to assume it's not for the best of these people either. And it would explain why we're seeing this now, when all indications are that the MLF is still in the building stage. The short version is that they feel provoked. Yardley said in a flat voice, meeting Lombroso's eyes levelly. She'd recommended relying solely on infantry for crowd control during the protests, but the president, irked by the challenge coming at him from some of the senior ranks of his own political party, had wanted a more visible and more intimidating deterrent. Well, he'd gotten that, hadn't he? He looked back at her for several seconds. Then he grimaced angrily and strode across his office to look out the window at downtown landing. All right, he admitted to himself. So maybe the guard overreacted when it started taking fire. Hell, no maybe about it, Svein, and you damned well know it. They got out of hand. But it's hard to blame them for wanting to make an example out of the bastards who'd opened fire on them. Not the kind of behavior you want to encourage, is it? Maybe not. Yet the better part of 3,000 casualties, two-thirds of them fatal, hadn't gone down well with the regime's opponents. And the Trifecta Tower attack had obviously enheartened the people already furious over the May Day Massacre. It might be unlikely that there were any more Brewsters out there prepared to make what amounted to suicide runs against high-visibility targets but that wasn't keeping a hell of a lot of other people from striking back in less spectacular fashion wherever and whenever they could, and their efforts were gaining momentum. He glowered down from the window at the boulevard where the scorpions had gone on their May rampage. Physical damage from that little episode was still easy enough to see, and the rebuilding efforts were one of the favored targets for the saboteurs who seemed to increase in numbers every day. He'd been hearing about that from his transstellar sponsors, too. They wanted their buildings back up and running, and they weren't especially shy about pointing out how much the May riots had cost them in damages and lost profits. He thought about leaning closer to the window, looking up Trifecta Boulevard towards the emergency vehicles and construction equipment clustered around the ruins of the parking garage, where an entire regiment of his elite troopers had been entombed. He didn't think about it very hard, though. So, you say him this is mostly freelance? He asked, never turning away from the window. That it isn't the MLF, just some of its members who are too pissed off for the leadership to control? That's my analyst's read, Yardley agreed, and Matyas nodded in agreement.
So what do we do about it? Lombroso wheeled to face them once more, clasping his hands behind him. Do we back the pressure off in hopes things will quiet down again, at least some, until Verrocchio's intervention battalions get here? Or do we try to bring the hammer down harder? I think that depends in part on whether or not the battalions are really on their way, Yardley replied. Is it your impression they are, Mr. President? I think they almost certainly are, he said after a brief hesitation. Zadis wouldn't have gone as far out on a limb promising she'd ask for them if she didn't expect to get them. And let's face it, we've always known that if she'd really asked for them before, they'd have been here a long time ago. Besides, she attached her endorsement to my messages to Commissioner Verrocchio. I don't think she would have done that if her own messages weren't urging Verrocchio to do the same thing. For that matter, even if she wasn't then, she damned well is now that we've lost Braddock's regiment. As for how long it's going to take them to get here, he shrugged, your guess is as good as mine. If that's the case, then I think we should hammer them now, hard, Yardley said. I think failing to hit them whenever and however we can, especially after Brewster's escapade, is only going to further embolden them, and I don't think restraint is going to cool any tempers on the other side. The best we might accomplish would be to get them to back off enough to let the MLF leadership reassert control, and frankly, if there really are solid gendarmerie intervention battalions on the way, backing off is the last thing we want them to do. Excuse me? Lombroso's expression was perplexed, and she shrugged. Mr. President, the MLF is the best organized batch of malcontents we've ever faced. They're tightly compartmentalized and usually highly disciplined. That's one reason we've had so much trouble penetrating them. But if the present provocations are spontaneous, not ordered from above, then they're probably going to be less meticulously planned and executed than the MLF operations we've seen in the past. That increases our chances of catching them at it and maybe scoring a few successes of our own. Taking some live prisoners we can talk to at our leisure, let's say. Pushing them into hasty, ill-conceived wildcat attacks, and no, I'm not putting Brewster into that category, but it's the best way to describe this other smaller crap, can only increase their vulnerability. It's bound to generate confusion, and Friedman's people are a lot more likely to be able to get someone inside or crack one of their communications lines open if they're trying to control their people on the fly. For that matter, even if we don't manage to break a single cell, any operations they mount are going to pull them further out into the open, at the very least. If we can suck them off balance, get them to expose themselves where we can get at them, especially if they don't know the intervention battalions are on their way, They'll be a much softer target for whoever Brigadier Usel sends to kick their asses for us. Lombroso frowned thoughtfully. He'd never considered the problem in those terms, yet now that he thought about it, Yardley's recommendations actually made sense. In fact, they were more imaginative than he was accustomed to hearing out of her. If that's the case... 
Should we expand our own offensive operations? He asked after a moment. Turn the heat up even further? I don't see where it could hurt, Yardley said. And to be honest, there are some agitators and so-called newsies out there who've been giving the MLF one hell of a lot of aid and comfort, especially since the May riots. I'd like to have the opportunity to entertain some of them, too. And whether we go after them now or later, we're still going to have to break a few necks in the end. Might as well make a start on it now. Lombroso nodded, then turned back to the window once again, lips pursed. He thought about it for perhaps a minute, then shrugged. All right, he said grimly. Go do it. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 31, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Sphinxian summer of tree cat romping and a warm shower of thanks to David Weber, Jane Linskull, Tony Weiskopf, and Tom Kratman. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.